Well, I'm thankful that we can rest our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need anything else. What He did is enough. As He cried from the cross, it is finished. And so we don't need to look for other proof or other hope. It's all wrapped up in Christ who died for us and rose again. However, life doesn't always feel that way. You may have found yourself in a place where you feel cornered or trapped or afraid. You look to the future and it looks confusing. It's hard to keep hoping in what yet seems to never come. Maybe you are confused about your circumstances and unsure what it all means. Maybe you're even afraid of what's lurking around the next corner. In those times, it's tempting to sort of shut our hearts and lock the door and throw away the key. And in a sense, I think that's exactly where we find Jesus' followers the same day of the resurrection. Sure, Mary's come and and given them news that Jesus is alive, but it hasn't fully sunk in yet. Maybe they think she's just confused or has had a vision or... They're afraid. In fact, that's what we learn in John 20, verse 19. The same day, the same day that Jesus rose from the grave, the same day He conquered sin and death, the same day that He was alive, they were afraid. The doors were shut. The word shut can even often mean locked. I mean, it's closed tight, sealed as much as possible. They're gathered there in this room. Why, John says, for fear of the Jews. Rumors may have already begun to spread of Jesus' disappearance, the resurrection, as we know. But the chief priests, the very ones who put him to death, are probably on the hunt. There there can't be any doubt that this insurgence related to Christ is put down for good. And so they're right to be thinking that maybe the Jews would be after Jesus' followers as well, wanting to put them down too. To be sure that this rumor about him being the Christ doesn't get very far. So they're afraid. They're hiding in the room and the doors are locked. They're, they're afraid. This is the situation where we encounter them when when Christ enters the scene. And as we progress through this text, it's not so much about doubting Thomas as it is about the truth of Christ. That he not only shows them in his visible person that he's alive, but then he commissions them, he sends them to take that truth and to speak it. In fact, he even gives them his spirit to help them with that task. And that as they give witness to the fact that Jesus is the Savior, that He's alive, those who hear should believe. And in fact, those very witnesses would one day write down the accounts of what happened with the Spirit's help. And that one day, people would even read that account, maybe even preach it in a Sunday morning sermon. And as we hear the words about Christ risen from the grave we would believe. And so that's the theme of our text. It's the theme of all of John's gospel. That as we read and hear and preach what is written, we would believe the truth about Jesus, that He really is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that believing you have life in His name. And this final text in John 20, as John moves to his theme in verses 30 and 31, he's He's sort of handing off the baton from the visible, living word of Christ to not just the the spoken word of the disciples, but even the written word, the the Spirit-empowered written word about Christ, the truth that He's the crucified and risen Lord, and that those who believe find life in His name. So, Consider with me how how John kind of draws us along. Really, I think Jesus is the one doing it. John just records it, and he's encouraging his followers not to just require that they see it to believe it, but to take Jesus at his word. And hasn't this been what he's been encouraging them to do all along? To take him at his word, to embrace his teachings, to keep his commands. You may remember that phrase from the farewell discourse. So here they are, scared and afraid in the room. Yes, they've had the words of Christ given to them. They could know and believe and understand, but Jesus graciously comes and appears in their presence. The doors are locked. In fact, John points out it's when the doors were locked that Jesus appears in the midst of them. A miracle. Now, it could be related to his glorified body. Maybe there's some special ability that his new body has to pass through walls, or it could just be a miracle. Either one are options. We don't know for sure. But either way, Jesus is there. The miracle has happened. He's alive from the dead. And he shows himself to them. He appears in the room. In the parallel passage in Luke 24, they're they're even still afraid. There's like joy, but they don't yet believe because they're not sure what's going on as Jesus is there. And so his first words to them at the end of verse 19 are, peace be with you, or just plainly, peace to you. It's a greeting. In the Hebrew, you're familiar with the word shalom. There's the word shalom with to you, peace to you, all is well. Oh. Take a deep breath. I'm here. I'm here. Jesus speaks peace to them. But it's interesting, at the same time he speaks peace, notice what he does in verse 20. Not only does he tell them of peace, he shows them of peace. He shows them the the scars in his hands. The word hands can mean not just hand, but even forearm. He shows them the scars there. He shows them the piercing in his side to prove to them, it's me. And these wounds prove to you that I've paid for your sin debt. It's finished. I died and I rose again. Peace with God. The wounds are proof of their peace with God. And so he shows them that it's really him. And at the end of verse 20, we read that they're glad. The word is they rejoiced. And so I think, again, this is in fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen. You'll have sorrow for a time. Remember chapter 16? You'll have sorrow for a time, but you'll see me in a little while. And when you'll do, your sorrow will be turned to joy and no one can take your joy from you. And they see Jesus and they believe. They see the wounds. He's purchased our peace with God and He's alive and their weeping, their sorrow, their fear is turned to joy. Of course, the appearance of Jesus, His words of peace and the joy should remind them that His word has indeed come true. As He predicted, 
In John 16, that he would give them his peace. He would leave it with them. That they would have sorrow, but soon they would have joy. Their thoughts could have even gone as far back as Isaiah 53, where there it was predicted that the Messiah would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. So here Jesus shows them His wounds, shows them proof, evidence of now their peace with God. And they're overjoyed that the one who died for them is alive again. See, this resurrection appearance of Jesus proves the truth of His Word. He's exactly who He said He was. He did exactly what He said He would do. He truly paid the price of sin in full. He truly brought peace with God. He truly rose again from the dead. And the crucified and risen Jesus proves that His Word is true. This is what we learn in this first section. Jesus, crucified and risen, proves the truth of His Word. The resurrection affirms in our minds everything He said He would do, He did. Even even His claim that if He was put to death, He would raise Himself in three days. I mean, the detail, and He did it exactly. Talk about power, control. That's true word. Right there. Everything he said is true. When we see something like this, we often believe it. We often want to see something to believe it. And here, Jesus stands before them proving in physical form the truth of his word. Of course, at times in life, there are situations where we don't have any eyewitnesses. And we can't prove that what we're saying is true. I used to work... In a, in a gymnasium, and so kind of did cleaning and, and maintenance and so on and so forth, set up and tear down, all this different stuff. And, uh, of course, it being a gymnasium, there was a basketball court right there, and I, I'm not a great basketball player, but I do enjoy shooting around. And so often when I got off work, I would uh, treat myself to, uh, you know, a few, an, half an hour, an hour to shooting around in the gym. And, uh, and so what I like to do, because I really wasn't good at basketball, I figured maybe I could at least be good at pig. And so I would practice various pig shots in the gym, right? Trick shots, right? So you begin to you know, calculate in your mind the different ways you can get the ball in the hoop. And so you think, okay, well, if I bounce it here off the backboard, nothing but net. Maybe you remember uh, those commercials from way back when. But, uh, so you think about all these ways you can win at pig, right? And so I had concocted this scheme Way up at the top of the gym, there were these concrete rafters. So I could stand at the half-court line, and I could toss the ball up and bounce it off two rafters, rafters, not rafters, rafters, and into the hoop, right? And I practiced it, and you're all sitting there going, yeah, right. Well, exactly. So, (laughs) So I would practice this shot and practice this shot, and I could do it with, you know, relative consistency for a shot like that, okay? So... Uh, so this was like my, you know, great pig shot. And so, you know, I get, hey, you want to play pig? Okay, you know, they had no idea. I'd been practicing uh, behind the scenes. But no matter when I told people that I could do this, they wouldn't believe me until they saw it, right? I, trust me, from the half-court line, bounce it off that rafter and that rafter, right in the hoop. Yeah, right, whatever. Okay, let's play pig, you know. <laughs> 
and then I wouldn't make it, and then they wouldn't believe me, right? And so this is just how it goes. You see, we often want to see to believe, and if there are no witnesses, we, we often can't prove to people that we really can do what we say we can do. But here, Jesus appears in the flesh to his disciples. They can see him. They can touch him. In fact, we learn in Luke, they eat with him. He's alive. They see the wounds in his hands and in his side. They believe he really did pay for our sins. He really did rise from the grave. We've seen him. We believe he's alive. The crucified and risen Christ proves the truth of his word. There's no There's no debating the truth of the resurrection. Beyond his disciples gathered here in John 20, Jesus was seen by over 500 witnesses. It's impossible to be more sure of an event that happened 2,000 years ago. But the point, his exact death and resurrection proves the truth of his word. He says it's true so we can trust his word. This is no freak accident. According to his plan, he rose from the grave. This wasn't just a random resurrection, not that that ever happens anyway. This is exactly as Jesus said it would go. He was in complete control every step of the way. His word is true. Because his word is true, we find peace and joy in Jesus. He shows up to his disciples. He shows them it's paid in full. You can see it in my wounds. I've died. I've risen again. It proves his word and they find peace and joy. But so too with us, friends. See, when we trust in Christ as Savior, we find true peace and joy. I have peace because even when I commit a new sin that I didn't know I was going to do until I did it, I remember it was included in what Jesus paid for on the cross when he says, it is finished. I see his wounds and I remember it's paid in full, just as he said. And that sets me at peace. I have joy because even when I suffer, I have proof in his resurrection that my suffering will result in joy and reward and in eternal life, just as he said. I have peace because I'm no longer an enemy of God. I'm reconciled. I'm right with God, loved by God. I see his wounds paid in full, just as he said. I have joy because I've trusted in his spirit. No matter what happens in life, no one can take his spirit from me, just as he said. I have peace because Jesus has overcome the world. And though we will have tribulation, he still has overcome the world just as he said. I have joy because my name is written in heaven, just as he said. Friends, we can take him at his word because he's alive. He rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death. He kept his word to every detail. And this gives us peace and joy. But Jesus has more to share with his followers than just peace and joy. In verses 21 through 23, we see how he gives them now a task to complete. He says to them again, peace to you. He's encouraging them. Hey, we've got peace. It's all settled. It's done. But there's something now I want you to do. He says, as the Father sent me, I also send you. 
Now this is a big statement. As the Father sent me, let's start there and let's think about how how Jesus was sent. What was Jesus sent to do? Well, we know he was sent as the Savior of the world. And, And the way he did that was to do exactly what the Father gave him to do, right? Jesus said this so many times through his ministry. The words I speak, I have from the Father. The works I do are from the Father. Everything Jesus did was according to the Father's plan. So Jesus was there representing exactly what the Father had sent him to do. Jesus was showing the world what the Father was like. Revealing the Father to the Word. Remember his words to Philip. Philip said, show us the Father. And Jesus said, have you not been with me? What, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. As John tells us in the opening chapter of his gospel, the Word became flesh and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God at any time, but we've seen the Son and the Son reveals the Father. So this is what Jesus was sent to do, to reveal the truth about God, leading to salvation. And now the disciples are sent to do the same thing for Jesus, to reveal the truth about Jesus, that He is the Savior. This is their task. And so they're sent, like Jesus was sent, to reveal the truth, to bear witness to the truth about Jesus. But they aren't quite ready. They're cowering in a room, afraid. They need some help. And so, in verse 22, Jesus breathes on them, which is just, a, a, I think, a picture to help them remember they have His help. And as He breathes on them, He says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this, I don't think, is the full giving of the Holy Spirit that happens at Pentecost. Remember, Jesus was talking all through the farewell discourse That when he departed, he would send the Spirit. Just a few examples about the fact that this would happen. He says in John 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now there he's talking about his ascension. So it's after he leaves that the Spirit would be in them. So I think this is just some special help from the Spirit, which is no surprise that's been happening all along. In fact, Jesus has already told them in 14 verse 17, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. So already the disciples have had the help of the Spirit of truth. So here's a little more help from the Spirit of truth, but not yet the indwelling. So this help is meant to help them testify. It's meant to help them bear witness to what Christ has done, died and rose again for them. They've already been receiving the Spirit's help, and here's a little more. In fact, in, uh, in the parallel passage in Luke, the same type of thing happens. Jesus, it says there, He opens their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. I think that's exactly what's happening here. He gives them the Spirit's help to understand the things that He had been teaching them already. He goes on in Luke 24, 46-49 to say, Thus it is written, and thus it is necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. 
Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you have have been endued with power from on high. So the, the full giving of that power of the Spirit dwelling in them is still coming. But here he gives them help during their time in Jerusalem to bear witness to the truth about Jesus, that he is alive. And that's exactly what John says here in John 20, 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So Jesus is sending them with a gospel message. And as they bear witness to Christ, if somebody rejects that message, then they're not forgiven. If somebody receives that message, then they are forgiven. Jesus is saying, now you have authority through your witness People can receive forgiveness or reject forgiveness. Indeed, this is something that God has sent them to do, that Christ has sent them to do to bear witness as they share the gospel. Those who receive it are forgiven. The phrasing emphasizes that God does this. They are forgiven them. So somebody else is doing the forgiven the forgiving and the disciples are preaching the gospel and recognizing that those who believe truly are forgiven. They can speak with confidence. They can say, if you believe this about Jesus, you will be forgiven. God will forgive your sins. And they can tell those who believe you are forgiven because the message we preach is the truth. There's a great example of this in Acts chapter 10, verse 43 where Peter is preaching, one of the disciples that was here and heard this from Jesus. And he's preaching to the crowds there and he says this, To Jesus all the prophets bear witness that through His name, whoever believes in Him will receive remission of sins. See, Peter could preach that way because he had been told by Jesus, as you preach the gospel, if somebody receives it, you can tell them their sins are forgiven Because they've believed and God has forgiven their sins. So here they're sent. They have His Word. They've visibly seen the truth. And now they're commissioned to bear witness to the truth. To speak the truth. And so what we see in this text is that Jesus sends those who saw the truth to speak the truth. They saw the truth about Jesus. They saw His wounds. He had died for them and rose again. And now they're sent to bear witness, to speak the truth. And those who receive their witness are forgiven. Those who reject their witness, their sins are not forgiven. They participate in the very salvation work of God by bearing witness. There are a number of ways that we bear witness today. We give testimony. Maybe you've uh, seen a car accident happen and been asked to give a police report. Okay, well, how did it happen? What did you see? What was the, uh, the process of events there? We bear witness in that sense. One of the ways today many companies ask us to bear witness is uh, by what they call referrals. In fact, just the other day I was offered a a new internet, fiber internet, right? It's supposed to be faster. And so uh, part of the, uh, the offer was that if I sign up and experience the faster speeds, if I spread the word and recruited other, you know, fiber internet signups, 
that I would receive a $50 credit to my account every time somebody else signed up, right? Why? They want me to bear witness. Oh, it's way faster. You should sign up. I get 50 bucks. You know, it's not quite a genuine witness, is it, right? Just after the 50 bucks. But this is what people want. Why? Because testimony to something is powerful. I saw it. It really was better. I can testify. I've experienced Listen to my word. And so here Jesus calls those who have seen and believed to bear witness. I saw his wounds. He spoke peace to me. My weeping was turned to joy. He's alive. He died for my sins and rose again. I have to tell you what he's done for me. You see, those who have seen the truth are to speak the truth. Here we have this interesting transition from the visible truth that is Jesus in the flesh to the verbal truth, the Spirit-enabled witness. Jesus is saying, not not everybody has to see me to believe. Now I'm giving you my Spirit's help to bear witness. The verbal truth is enough to believe. So He reveals the truth to them. And friends, you and I have had the truth revealed to us as well. We have the Word of God, and it is sufficient for all things that pertain to life and godliness. We're equipped with the message of God, the Word of life to a dying world. What if you had the the cure to a cold or to COVID or to cancer or to any other disease for that matter? You would spread the Word. What if you had the cure for eternal death? We do. We have the truth about Jesus. Then He equips them with help. But friends, He has equipped us with help. If you've trusted in Christ as Savior today, we're living after the time of Pentecost when Jesus did depart to heaven and now everyone who believes in Christ as Savior is indwelt with His Spirit and help for boldness, for clarity, for courage, for grace, for compassion, in bearing witness to what God has done in Jesus. This is our role. The Spirit can use the words of Scripture to penetrate hearts beyond what you and I have power to do. God can do through the message of truth, the gospel that Jesus died for my sins and rose again. And a great way to share that message with people who need it is to share what God did in your life, to bear witness. Can I tell you what He's done for me? I was lost. I was dead in my sins. And when I trusted in Jesus as Savior, the one who died for me and rose again, He made me new. He forgave my sins, gave me life everlasting. I have hope, I have joy, and I have peace because my Savior lives. Not only does He give them a task, we indeed have the same task, that all who have believed in Jesus become His witnesses, Spirit-enabled witnesses, sharing the Word, the message, the truth about Jesus and the Word of God written down. But as this story continues to unfold, John wants us to understand that someone was missing from the first encounter with Jesus there in the fearfully locked room. 
Verse 24 clues us in that Thomas wasn't there. He's called the twin. This is uh, two possibilities here. Either he had a twin, and so that was sort of his nickname, or it could be the, the actual word for twin was sometimes used as a name. Didymus, and so it may be that he went by that as a nickname. We don't know for sure, but at any rate, Thomas was absent. Now, if we study the Luke account of this, it's really interesting because Thomas was present just before the two disciples from the road to Emmaus arrived. And so I think what happened is... Thomas was there. The two disciples from the road to Emmaus begin spouting another story about the resurrected Christ. He's already heard it from Mary. And now two more disciples claim that they they saw him. Thomas is like, nope, mm -mm, not for me. I need to see it to believe it. I'm out of here. And he leaves. The scripture doesn't tell us that for sure, but I think that's how it unfolded. And so by the time Jesus arrives, which actually was while the two disciples from the road to Emmaus were still talking, Thomas has left, Jesus shows up, and this is where that first section takes place. But now, we are about a week later. The disciples say to Thomas, and and remember now, this is the Spirit-enabled witness of his disciple friends. They bear witness to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. He's alive. And Thomas again says, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. He wants to see and touch. I want to see the scars and I want to actually touch the wound before I believe. Thomas has his own terms for faith. This is not doubt. This is unbelief. He's chosen not to believe the the testimony of his friends, the disciples. So then in verse 26, we find out it's eight days later. If this includes the first Sunday, then it's a week later, the next Sunday, including eight days total. If it doesn't include the first Sunday, then it's the next Monday. We just don't know for sure exactly how John was counting the days. At any rate, about a week later. There they are in the room again, which is another proof The Spirit's not indwelling them. They just have some extra help. We don't see boldness and courage from the disciples until after they have the Spirit in them. Here, they're still afraid. So they're in the room. The doors are shut. And like I said, that word can even mean locked. They're there inside. Jesus appears to them again in the same manner. He's a miracle. He shows up. But it becomes clear why Jesus came this time. He comes just for Thomas. He knows. He knows Thomas is not believing. And he's come to help him. Isn't that just like our Lord? So patient with us. He knows Thomas has rejected the spirit-enabled witness of the fellow disciples, and yet Jesus shows up. It's like, okay, Thomas, we'll do the whole scene again just for you. And Jesus comes, and without asking Thomas, he knows exactly what it was that Thomas wanted. What does Jesus tell them? He comes in verse 27 to Thomas, reach your finger here. Go ahead, Thomas, touch. That's what you wanted, isn't it? Go ahead, look, see. Put your hand into my side. Why is Jesus doing this? Well, the end of verse 27 makes it clear. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. 
Believe. Thomas, I told you this was going to happen. Believe. Here I am. Look at me. Touch me. Believe. Believe. The Lord steps toward him in kindness, in his, in his unbelief. And isn't this so true of our Lord? He moves toward us with compassion and encourages our faith, just as he came for Thomas. Thomas sees the Lord, and in verse 28, we have this incredible confession. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Indeed, Thomas believed. (laughs) He calls Jesus Lord, Master. This would have been the appropriate term for a follower. I'll go wherever you call me. I'll do whatever you want. I believe in you. But not just Lord, he calls him God. Thomas believes in the identity of Christ. What the resurrection proves is that Jesus truly is the Son of God, as he's been saying all along. And so Thomas now gets it. You are God. Not just any Lord and God. My God. My Lord. It's personal. Thomas has seen the risen Lord and he believes and And now Jesus is his personal Lord, his personal God. A strong confession could only be made with the help of the Holy Spirit. As we know, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 affirms, no one can truly call Jesus Lord without the help of the Holy Spirit. And so I think even here, Thomas has the Spirit's help to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has believed. But verse 29 helps us see where this is all leading. Jesus says to Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed, which uh, this is maybe a rebuke. Maybe just Jesus sort of recalling Thomas back to, you know, you, you had heard from your friends that I was alive. You believed when you saw me. That's, that's good. Belief is the key here. That's good. But he's nudging Thomas a little further. Don't make demands about how you believe, Thomas. What does he say at the end of verse 29? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. There's a special blessing, joy for those who don't see and yet believe in the risen Christ. And so Jesus is nudging his followers past this demand for, well, I'll have to see it before I believe. He's just saying, no, no, no. No, the Spirit-empowered Word, the witness, is enough for you to believe. Don't make demands for you to believe. Trust my Word. Trust my Word. This is what Jesus is encouraging Thomas, and I think all those who follow after him, because Many throughout history have believed in Jesus without seeing the resurrected Lord. It's not a question of if we will see Him, it's a question of when. We will all see Him. All of us will bow the knee before the risen Lord. We'll all know, we'll see the wounds in His side, and we'll see Him alive and reigning forevermore. It's not a question of whether we'll see Him, it's whether you will believe before you see Him. Will you take Him at His word? See, Jesus encourages his followers to believe the truth without seeing. Take him at his word. This is what he encouraged Thomas to do. In fact, he'd already heard the Spirit-helped witness of his friends, the disciples. We've seen the risen Lord. Now, not for me. i got to see it to believe it. Jesus says, no, Thomas, 
Don't be unbelieving. Believe my words. And even believe the Spirit's empowered testimony of my words. This has, of course, been the case all through Scripture, hasn't it? Faith is not seeing. Faith is taking God at His word. This is no surprise to us. It's always been this way. This is always how God has uh, imputed righteousness to people, by faith. Think all the way back to Abraham, for instance. What promise had God given Abraham that his descendants would be like the stars? Well, sure, Abraham could see the stars, but he couldn't see his descendants, not even Isaac. And even when he had Isaac, God led Abraham to put him to death at the top of a mountain. And Abraham trusted. He couldn't see what was coming, but he believed God and God credited to him as righteousness. See, we're saved by faith. Friends, take God at His word. Take God at His word. There will be so many times in life that we can't see what's coming. Where we'll want more proof. We'll want more evidence. We'll want to see the future. We'll want to know what's going to happen next and how all of this is going to unfold. We'll want to see exactly how is God using this for good in my life right now. So many things we want to see, but God calls us to take Him at His word. This is why we walk not by sight, but by faith. And so, for us, the Spirit's enabled witness about the truth of Christ is His word. Written down by those followers who were given help to do that very thing. And so, when we read it, we take God at His word. So friend, what is it that you can't see today? Is it what tomorrow holds? How your suffering will turn out for good? How many days you have left on earth? What truth must you believe? That God is working all things for good, as He said? That your times are in His hands? That He will never leave you nor forsake you? That your sin debt is paid in full? That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That you can not only stop working for your salvation, but that you must stop working for your salvation and trust Him alone. That only Jesus' death and resurrection can save you. What about the gospel? That Jesus died for your sins and rose again. Are you looking for more proof? Or will you take God at His word and believe? All of this leads to verses 30 and 31 where we see the conclusion of the signs of the Gospel of John. John says this in verse 30, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Catch what's going on here. John, to the words of Christ, has just helped the reader understand that to believe in Jesus, we don't have to see Him. In fact, we can believe the witness of those who saw Him and were given the Spirit to bear witness of Jesus Christ. John himself being one of those disciples. And then Jesus encourages all who are reading this story to not 
see and believe, but to believe the testimony. And then John says, I'm writing this testimony so that you will believe. And so the reader is encouraged to take John at his word, and not just the words of John, but the Spirit-enabled Word of God, the message of Christ written down for all those in history from that point forward to read, to believe, and live. John calls the reader to accept the verbal truth of Christ, that He is indeed the Messiah. This is the first part of John's encouragement. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. This means Messiah, or in other terms, we could say Savior, the one sent by God to save His people. He's the Savior. He's the one. But not just that, the Son of God. And this is not uh, this idea of like something being less than God. This is equal with God. This was taken all through Jesus' ministry as a claim to be equal with God. In fact, Jesus himself said, I deserve equal honor as the Father. Jesus is fully divine as the Son of God. The Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son, but the Son is God, and the Father is God. You see, Jesus is divine. And so when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as Savior, the one who died for me and rose again, we have life. That believing, you may have life in His name. Not life that you've earned, not life that you've accomplished or gained on your own, but eternal life gained by the very work of Christ, the name, all that Christ represents, His very person. He's the one who saves you. And so you believe in Him and find life everlasting. Friend, these words in John were written for you. Do you understand that? John may not have known you in his mind as a finite human being, but believe me, the Spirit of God who led John to write these words knows you. And he knows that today you would be sitting under the hearing of these very words. Your eyes would read this very text that God wrote so that you would believe. Do you understand that? That's Jesus showing up in the room for Thomas. Here he is today calling you, friend, to believe the truth of his word. It's written. He died for your sins and rose again. There's no other way of salvation. The apostles would go on to preach this so clearly. His is the only name by which we must be saved. Friend, your sins keep you from God. As Jesus says, the the only way for forgiveness is to accept this gospel message. And if you will believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again, you receive forgiveness of sins, peace with God. Your sorrow is turned to joy and you find life everlasting. This is the invitation to you today who have read the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ alive from the dead. Would you, friend, believe in Jesus today? And if you have trusted in Christ, keep reading. 
It's not just the gospel message, but the whole story of Scripture, the very Word of God that He has given us. And we know from Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So friends, if you're fighting unbelief in your life, get in the Word and take God at His Word. Read, believe, and live. The written testimony of Christ is given power by His Spirit to change our hearts, to work faith in us that we would believe and live. I don't know where you're at today in your own relationship with God or maybe lack thereof. But as the very words of Scripture today invite you to believe, If you don't know Christ as Savior, now is the time to believe. If you do know Christ as Savior, you may find yourself hiding in the room behind locked doors, closing yourself off from faith. Don't be unbelieving. Believe. Get back in the Word. Read what He says to you and take Him at His Word. You haven't lost your salvation. But friend, be believing. Keep accepting what he has said as true over and above what you feel and even what you see. Take him at his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that we can trust, that we can believe. We thank you that no matter what we face in this life, your word is sure and enduring and we have confidence because Jesus is alive. We thank you that you gave this testimony to the followers who saw him, who witnessed, who even touched his side. And now it is written down by the work of your spirit so that we who read today can also believe. And so we pray for your help. We admit to you, Father, that we are a people quick to be unbelieving. We would We would cry the words of the New Testament, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Help us to take you at your word. By your Spirit's power, even now, we ask that if there's anyone here today that does not know Jesus as Savior, that you would draw them to faith, that they would take you at your word, that the written word of God would bear witness in their lives, and that they would believe in Jesus as Savior. We thank you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.